Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on April 15, 2020. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast. This evening, we're talking with Drew Penrose, the Law and Policy Director for FairVote. Drew contributes to efforts to promote ranked choice voting, primary election reform, election administration, and the Voting Rights Act. He and Rob Ritchie have co-authored two law review articles arguing for the use of ranked choice voting in legislative elections. Drew has also helped draft and submit amicus briefs in cases concerning voting rights, primary elections, and ballot access. Drew earned a BA in philosophy and a BS in psychology from the University of Arizona in 2006 and a jurisprudence degree from the James E. Rogers College of Law in 2012. He is licensed to practice law in Arizona, where he has also published articles on public financing of elections in the Arizona Law Review and Arizona Attorney Magazine. FairVote's mission is to be a nonpartisan champion of electoral reforms that gives voters greater choice, a stronger voice, and a representative democracy that works for all Americans. FairVote has a proven record since 1992 as a nonpartisan trailblazer that advances and wins electoral reforms at the local, state, and national level through strategic research, communications, and collaboration. FairVote's board of directors represents a mix of national leaders and local reformers who reflect a broad range of experiences and accomplishments. So, Drew, welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, and thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Good. So uh, just to start off here, I've, I've got a question. We are in the age of social distancing because of COVID-19, and this is, uh, has a direct bearing on our ability to get fair representation. But uh, you know, the problem is that you know, so much of our voting traditions necessitate direct involvement. Um, Wisconsin, for example, uh, recently asked their citizens to take a big health risk to exercise their voting rights. Uh, by getting directly involved physically at a relatively small number of polling places. Now, I, I just can't imagine this becoming a standard, especially when you know, voting by mail or electronic voting seems like completely viable and practical alternatives. So in light of this, uh, do you have any comments on what took place in Wisconsin and perhaps more broadly, what is FairVote's approach to preventing voter disenfranchisement in this age of social distancing? Yeah, it was amazing what took place in Wisconsin, wasn't it? It was really kind of a train wreck. Uh, I I couldn't believe it when the when the decision was made. Um, it it made sense. the The Supreme Court came out with its decision, and it it wasn't super surprising to me. There was a lot of people angry about it, of course, but at the federal level, there isn't a lot of protection of the right to vote that is largely regulated to or relegated, I should say, to the state. Mm-hmm. And so when states do stuff like that, there's not much that the U.S. Constitution can really say about it, not much that the courts can can therefore say about it. So it wasn't totally surprising to me that the, the courts bowed out, not the fact, notwithstanding the fact that there were four justices willing to step up and do something about it. But well, it was a 5-4 was was decision, wasn't it? It was, yeah, yeah. Uh, and along the, the sort of usual ideological lines, um, but at, at the same time, the, the four justices would have been breaking new ground, I think it's fair to say. Uh, there is a, a right to vote jurisprudence, but there's no affirmative right to vote in the Constitution. And without that, uh, it's hard to see what constitutional basis there is for telling a state mm-hmm. that they need to do, do such. You know, if it's basically, if a state wants to demand voters vote in person during a pandemic, 
that's there's not much that the Constitution has to say about that, which is which is a problem. Mm-hmm. Right. That's something that should should be addressed. In the meantime, you know, it, it's amazing that they that they went forward with it. And it's amazing the turnout that we saw. So people did actually come out and vote in Wisconsin. And we saw increased turnout rates uh, on the Democratic side compared to prior years. There was a reduction in Republican turnout, but that's not at all surprising when you remember that around this time, the 2016 Republican primary was still quite competitive. And obviously, they don't have a Republican presidential primary with any competition Mm. right now. But Democratic turnout was higher than I would expect, given the level of competition we're at right now with the Democratic presidential primary. Uh, we, we've signed on to uh, letters calling on Congress, calling on the states to do something about this. Uh, voting by mail is now already a normal part of the voters' experience in many states. Uh, it used to be that if you wanted to vote by mail, the old rule was you had to have an excuse. Right. You had to say, I'm going to be out of the state during that time or I'm in the military. I'm going to be deployed uh, or something like that. But more and more states have been picking up so-called no fault absentee voting, which is to say you can just say that you want to vote by mail and they'll send you a mail in ballot without asking why. And some states have gone so far as to automatically send people ballots to say voting by mail is is the default way Mm. of voting in this particular state. And uh, there's really no good reason why we shouldn't be expanding, at the very least, that first option, the ability for people to ask to vote by mail and vote by mail if they want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, electronic voting voting is still a little ways off. The experts that I've talked to say that we don't have the infrastructure in place to do it in a secure way, and I, I wouldn't want to get ahead of them. I'm not an expert in everything that goes, goes into that, mm-hmm. but I would... I would uh, defer to them on that point. We're, we're living in an age where people are very, very concerned about votes being changed and hacking and that sort of thing. And so that's an area where we should tread carefully, I would think. But vote by mail, honestly, is kind of a no-brainer. Well, electronic voting, I mean, we, we trust um, electronic um, control of our bank accounts or um, the most recent census that arrived at my house said, hey, you can do this electronically. So just got online right away and did it. So... I mean, it, it does seem to, to me like it's 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 coming, but yeah, it may not be here yet, though. You're you're probably right that that uh, eventually the future will look more like that. Uh, I don't know what it'll take to get there, but but basically what I've heard from folks is that it it actually can be done right now for internal uses because the the issue is an infrastructure issue. So if you've got a private association, which can include often a state political party, they may be able to conduct their election electronically because they may have a real tight handle on who their membership is, uh, get them security codes and stuff like that, and, and be able to have a secure process. Mm-hmm. But for a public election, that's, that's my understanding. And even vote by mail is challenging for a lot of these places. It's the, the state of voter registration is still very you know, very, very difficult in, mm. in many of these states. Um, I personally received a letter asking if I wanted to vote by mail from Arizona for years and years and years wow. <laughs> after I left Arizona. Wow. Uh, uh, to be fair, I didn't, I didn't tell them, like I, I didn't deregister from Arizona, but I had registered to vote in Maryland right after moving up here. And at least in theory, 
what's supposed to happen is Maryland is supposed to notify Arizona and then Arizona is supposed to take me off the rolls. Uh, but that kind of, it's that, uh, again, goes back to what I was saying earlier about how much election administration is a state issue, mm-hmm. that you run into lots of coordination problems when things become interstate, yeah. uh, which is so much of our lives now. I mean, I, I have a, 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 an Arizona phone number because that's where I got my phone, but I moved there, but I grew up in Texas. Like, people move all over the country these days. Yeah. So uh, we, we really got to do something about that infrastructure. Yeah, you think maybe the federal government should uh, would have some incentive to jump in on this, but um, I don't know. So the um, so what is what is Fair Vote's approach to preventing voter disenfranchisement during social distancing? I mean, do do you think that states or individual states are adequately preparing for uh, COVID nineteen mitigation during the upcoming election this November? States are doing some good things. Uh, Congress appropriated $400 million for the states uh, through the CARES Act. That's not as much as most groups that have been looking into this think is necessary. $400 million, as I understand it, is roughly the cost of postage Mm. for getting everybody a mail-in ballot. But you would also need all of the associated, you know, just office space staff members and so on who are ready to open those ballots. You need a centralized high-speed scanner to be able to scan them all in the one, one location and so on. Right. So things are happening, not as much as they should. Uh, we don't really have the coordination. But if you go to, if, if uh, listeners want to go to fairvote.org, we have a link on the homepage. Right now, It's there are three, three big boxes. And the one on the bottom right is about ensuring safe and fair elections during a pandemic. Mm, okay. Where we talk about those access issues, voting by mail, and uh, <clears throat> two other issues that are getting less attention but are really important. One is uh, petition deadlines and requirements. Mm-hmm. So there's been some action around this, but candidates often have to gather petitions in order to get onto the ballot. Mm-hmm. Political parties have to gather petitions in order to get ballot access. And ballot initiatives have to collect signatures in order to get onto the ballot. A bunch of them had to just cancel their entire efforts. Yeah, and that's it's not just sad for the campaigns. Like that, that is an issue for voters because those ballot access issues are what decide the scope of our choices when we go in to vote. And so it's really important for all voters that ballot measure campaigns, political parties, and candidates have the opportunity to get their names on the ballot. And there has been some action around this. So some states have passed legislation extending deadlines or reducing signature requirements. There are also a few lawsuits working their way through through the courts. Oh, I need to tune issue. into that because uh, among other things, I'm a full-time software developer, a podcaster, but I'm also the Missouri State Chair for the uh, Alliance Party. And I have the task of uh, helping to gather petition signatures, and I'm right in the middle of that right now. I've actually asked my uh, my local legislators, my uh, uh, representative and uh, senator, wrote them letters. Um, got one fairly, uh, um, um, I don't know, it's a really bad letter back from one of them. I was, I was kind of surprised how, how um, aggressive he was in responding to my letter. But uh, and I also wrote the governor, I wrote the uh, Missouri ACLU, and... Um, okay. Speaking of people, you know that are that are pulling issues away from uh, um, ballot issues. There's this there's this group called Missourians for a New Approach, 
they have to collect 120,000 signatures. They got 50,000 signatures into this, and they have to collect it by May 3rd. They're trying to put um, uh, legalizing adult use marijuana on the ballot. They have to get 120,000 signatures. They got 50,000 signatures into it, and they called it off because of the COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And they only have to like May 3rd to get this all done. So, uh, yeah. yeah, this is a tragedy. This is a tragedy for uh, d- for democracy. I think. Yeah, it's it's touched on our issues in a couple of direct ways as well. There were folks gathering petition signatures in Massachusetts and Alaska and in uh, South Dakota at the time that this all happened. And uh, I honestly am not sure what the status is of that. They may be finding ways to get it done, uh, but it's it's difficult. The, yeah. the best source actually for tracking action around this issue is uh, Richard Winger's page, Ballot Access News which is just ballot-access.org, which is a news source basically all about um, political parties outside of the Democrats and Republicans, I guess would be a fair way to put it. So independents, third third parties, that sort of thing. Um, He covers news that's relevant to to basically multi-party democracy. Okay. And he's done a really good job of tracking it. What's that website again? Ballot-access.org? Yeah, ballot-access.org. Ballot-access. Okay, I'm going to look that up. Yeah, ballot-access news. It's, a, it's actually, I, I largely thank Richard Winger and ballot-access news for the fact that I wound up at Fairvote and got into this work oh. uh, for for uh, a few reasons. When I, I, You mentioned in my bio when I was at uh, law school, I wrote on campaign finance reform. It's because his reporting on the lawsuit over Arizona's public financing law, which when I started law school was just at the district court level, but I immediately got interested and started following it. And uh, during my 3L year, my my final year of law school, it was actually in the Supreme Court. So the fact that I had this expertise on that topic Hmm. wound up making me a a good person to be sort of uh, speaking about what what it was and what its implications were. Uh, and so that was my foray into election law. I mean, I, I had already been a supporter of ranked choice voting. I actually tried to get it in my student government while I was at the University of Arizona. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but the fact that it became part of my legal career was sort of through that, and that ultimately led to me working a fair vote after law school. Okay. Well, that uh, yeah, you just, in fact, I've been reading uh, some of the blogs on Fair Vote, and I like those blogs because they're usually fairly short. You can read them in about a minute and a half or whatever, but they always have, well, not always, but usually have some pretty good references on them that you can look up if you want to do a deep dive. Well, one of your most recent um, blog articles had to do with Alabama's military and overseas voters uh, participating in primary runoff elections. And so it got me to thinking, you know, it, it, it surprises me that any time there is a runoff election of any type, usually it's primary runoff elections, they got to get people back together again and go through the whole process again. It just amazes me that more people don't demand something like ranked choice voting so that you can do these instant runoffs, uh, if for no other reason, just for the sheer convenience of it all. Uh, yeah, I agree completely. Um, in fact, I, I mentioned there, there are two other things on the issue of pandemics. Uh, aside from the the access to voting, the vote by mail stuff, one is that petition signatures. And this is the third one. This is one that people need to be aware of, is that if places are trying to transition to voting by mail, it's going to be extremely difficult for them to conduct runoff elections. Uh, 
Mm. Uh, you conduct one election, and then if nobody has a majority, you're supposed to conduct another election, often not too long after that first one. Ideally, not too long after that first one, to be honest, because you will lose voters the longer you put, right. the more time you put between rounds of voting. Uh, there are five states, Alabama is one of them, that have solved this by giving military and overseas voters, the hardest ones to kind of send a ballot to and get another one back, uh, a ranked ballot during the first election. So mm-hmm. they get their ballot, they, their primary ballot, they, they bubble in one candidate, and then they also fill out a ranked ballot. Okay. And then if there's no majority in that primary election, that's when they'll get out the ranked ballots and they'll automatically have basically a runoff vote from all of those military and overseas voters. They just they just count that ballot for whichever candidate in the runoff is ranked highest. <laughs> they could extend that right to all voters, either make it an option for all voters to participate in it, mm-hmm. or you know, if they gave everybody a ranked ballot and said fill out this ranked ballot, then they wouldn't have to hold the runoff at all. And right. that would solve a lot of problems and save a lot of trouble in terms of having to conduct a second election. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, it really is kind of a fruitful area for states to consider, especially as they're as they're increasing the costs of having to adapt a new, you know, a new way of voting. Many of the states with runoff elections are states in the American South mm-hmm. and relatively few of those states al- allow no absentee vote by mail right now. So uh, as those are going to be some of the most difficult to make the transition to vote by mail, adding this option is sort of an obvious thing for them to do. Yeah. A lot more convenient and a lot less less money. You cited like $400 million going to the states as part of the CARES Act. And most of that would go toward, uh, uh, I guess it'd be like mail, uh, mailing out ballots. And uh, if, um, yeah, it's at first, I was kind of blown away by that number. Then I realized, well, there's uh, probably somewhere around 200, uh, 220 million voters in the United States. So, mm-hmm. you know, just do the math. Um, it's like $2 per mailing. It's, it makes sense at that point. So it's a lot of money. Yeah. For, it's, whenever you're talking about federal budgetary stuff, it can sound like a lot of money, but but at the federal level, four hundred million is really not very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it requires a lot more than that for fifty states to conduct an election. Yeah, and we also talked. Just want to just want to hit one point before you talked about uh, petitions, uh, petition signatures. I believe Phil Murphy, uh, Governor Phil Murphy of New Jersey, has um, during this time of uh, of COVID nineteen mitigation has allowed for electronic uh, petition signatures, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I know that Governor Cuomo in New York, I believe, has reduced, uh, you know, these are all by executive order, by the way. They've, he's reduced the um, the number of petition signatures required drastically, I think, down to like one-third or something like that. So there is, there is yeah, some those, progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those, those are some of the things that people are asking for and some things that states can do. Electronic petitioning is, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier some some reticence about electronic voting, but electronic p- petitioning, there's no reason not to implement right now because the state's going to verify each and every one of those petition signatures anyway. Yeah. So the if somebody were to, you know, create a bunch of fake names and sign a bunch of petitions electronically, that's okay because those would just not be counted. Right. And it might throw off the campaign's numbers, but but other than that, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't actually be a, a worrisome source of problems. Uh, it's uh, it's quite something to count 
signatures on a petition too, if I may digress, because you have to make sure that whoever signed it was actually um, a legitimate voter and that there's no you know, other uh, outstanding issues like they're, they're living within a certain district or whatever. Uh, they haven't signed it twice, et cetera. I mean, electronic voting just, I think, just uh, ideally anyways, gets rid of all those worries and all that cost associated with it. So so uh, let me see. We talked about uh, petitions and so on. Um, uh, how does, and kind of related to this, uh, and this may be a, more of a strategic question, but how does fair vote typically get ranked choice voting on the ballot? I mean, recognizing, of course, that Statistically speaking, most of the incumbents out there, I'm, I'm talking about maybe you know, talking about politicians basically, but statistically speaking, the incumbents are almost guaranteed to keep their seat the way things go these days. And, um, and you know, according to Represent Us, they make this one of their talking points that the will of the people almost never influences the actual voting behavior of the representatives. So given all that, that's a huge boulder to push up a hill. So how does fair vote, you know, I know it's a big question, but how does fair vote uh, typically get ranked choice voting on the ballot? Yeah, so in election reform, there's often this issue that you're operating in a space where you're trying to change the rules, and the people who have the power to change the rules are the ones who are winning under them, right? So mm-hmm. there's, there's sort of this natural conflict. Ranked choice voting is actually pretty special in that Uh, unlike a lot of the other areas of of election reform, it can be a win-win. So it can be something that people in office actually really appreciate and are likely to be in favor of. Uh, It it doesn't necessarily threaten them so much as it uh, allows their elections to be conducted in a way that's faster and smarter and actually makes things better for them in terms of campaigning and that sort of thing. So an example of this is that uh, people who are elected major party people may be concerned if there's growing interest in a third party or if more people are voting for independents, that that will throw chaos into their election because a third party candidate may may enter the field Mm -hmm. and attract some voters who otherwise would be inclined to vote for them and lead to some some other candidate, some random weirdo kind of candidate basically winning with a plurality of the vote and ranked choice voting allows them to avoid that. Uh, the third party and independent candidates also like ranked choice voting because it means that they can run and be on a level playing field without being accused of being a spoiler. So if people are going to engage with them, they'll engage with them on their ideas, not on the question of whether they should be in the race at all. Uh, which, so basically, ranked choice voting allows you to have a kind of win-win scenario. And in fact, most of the local adoptions of ranked choice voting have not been people petitioning and getting it directly onto the ballot. Most of them have been cities adopting charter commissions that then choose to put ranked choice voting onto the ballot. So there is a little bit of an insider thing happening. Charter commissions aren't directly elected officials, but... Uh, there's often a, a connection there. It shows that there's a little bit more institutional support. So that happened in New York City, for example. Just, just last year, New York City voted overwhelmingly to adopt ranked choice voting for their city's primary elections, which are the, the most significant elections in New York City because it's a, an overwhelmingly democratic mm-hmm. jurisdiction. Um, and that came out of a recommendation from a charter commission. So there you had a group of people considering options for the city's elections, a lot of different options, 
We okay. participated in testimony and ultimately got it there. But but this is something that can pass legislatively. It is true that some of the biggest adoptions have been through ballot initiatives, most notably the fact that Maine uses ranked choice voting mm-hmm. for all of their federal and state primary elections and for federal general elections. That was done through ballot initiative, and it probably had to be done through ballot initiative there. And there are a few, I mentioned Massachusetts, South Dakota, Alaska efforts going on for ranked choice voting in those places. Okay. Um, <clears throat> well, that's interesting. So um, I guess, you know, I'm not a lawyer, so I have to ask kind of a dumb question here, but um, if you're going to get something like ranked choice voting uh, into the uh, into the state law, uh, speaking at the state level, it, you could go through a ballot initiative, which would require petitions and so on, or you could appeal directly to, I guess what you're saying, appeal directly to the legislator or to legislators and um, have them sponsor bills to do it that way as well. And it sounds like what you're saying is that, is that many of them are incentivized to do it anyways. Yeah, it's something that actually works to, to do through the legislature. So, it, I mean, activists are going to do things their own way in their own states. And, and in fact, uh, you started this by asking how does fair vote get ranked choice voting on the ballot? We don't really. It's, it's activists that are local that ultimately do it. Hmm. Uh, we do want to foster that. So we, you know, we'll provide all sorts of resources to them uh, in order to get them involved. Uh, but we actually, when it comes to our direct advocacy, are pretty focused on federal level reform. When you see state and local efforts happening, that's being led by state and local groups. Okay. So, um, uh, uh, but when they form, they they'll they'll adopt all sorts of strategies. But for any of them, I think I would rec- recommend that they try to find a, ch- a champion in their state legislature or on their city council. Uh, and often you can't. You know, it's it's not as difficult as some of these other election reform issues can be. Oh, okay. That, that's that's interesting. Very surprising, uh, delightfully surprising news to me. So that's that's good. So how about other types of election reforms? Um, there's there's things like um, well, we talked about mail-in and electronic voting, but uh, you know, bigger things, perhaps like elimination of the electoral college in presidential elections, or um, having say nationwide same-day primary voting. Uh, mm-hmm. There's, and we actually had Ralph Nader on the show a few months back earlier this year, and he was really pushing for, or uh, very motivated for, automatic voter registration for people over 18, where you know no registration is needed. As soon as you turn 18, you get registered, and furthermore, you know making it a duty to vote, like jury duty. Yeah, you know, Australia apparently does this. So, um, any of those other initiatives that Fair Vote is behind at this point? Uh, we have strategically decided to focus on ranked choice voting. So in terms of our direct advocacy and where we put most of our capacity, that is going to be like 90% of our work. We have a history of being involved in some of those efforts. So automatic voter registration, in many ways, we were at the forefront of before it was a mainstream idea. Mm. Automatic voter registration has since been picked up by a number of states, but we were talking about it as early as like the 1990s. Uh, at a time when when people were were saying, you know, we, we're far too starry-eyed. This couldn't possibly be done in the United States because we don't have the national ID card. You know, all the sort of mm-hmm. things that would that other countries have that enable them to do automatic voter registration. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we identified ways it could be done. 
and now it's actually done by by a number of states. So so that is something we have worked on, we, we don't work on currently. In terms of the Electoral College, we were the first organization to endorse the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. So this is the idea that rather than uh, a rather than using a constitutional amendment to abolish the electoral college, you can get to a national popular vote while retaining the electoral college. And and the way that works is that the constitution says that states can assign their electors however they want. It's been interpreted by the Supreme Court to say that there's essentially no limits on it. <clears throat> when it comes to choosing electors, the state legislature can adopt any method for choosing electors. What that means is that each state has always had the right to say, rather than using the votes within our state alone, we're going to look at who wins the most votes in all 50 states and the District of Columbia, and whichever candidate wins that national popular vote, they're going to get our electors. What the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact does is it has states agree to do that together, and it only goes into effect once enough states have adopted that law so that that will guarantee the national popular vote winner a majority in the Electoral College. So states comprising a majority of electoral votes, once they have all passed that, then it will go into effect. A bunch of states have passed it. They're actually something like 70 70% of the way there in wow. terms of uh, it going into effect. How many? Now, that issue... Go oh, ahead. No, I was just going to say, how many states need to pass it for this? It has to be all 50? Oh, no. It, it, a majority, a, sta- a number of states such that they comprise a majority of the Electoral College. Okay. So realistically, it will be more than half of the states, um, but it doesn't actually need to be. So like California passed it. California has 55 electors. You compare that to, to many other states that only yeah. have three. Yeah, Wyoming or whatever. has yeah. 11, has 10. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> so that that's something I expect we'll be hearing more about as it gets closer and closer to uh, going into effect. We also, I mean, we don't do any direct advocacy on national popular vote at this point, but we serve as a kind of like intellectual, you know, resource for them. So one way that that's gotten a lot of attention recently is our website where we track so-called faithless electors. This is important for the national popular vote movement because it's often a criticism of the system that it can't work because the electors might just vote for something else anyway. And so we track uh, how that issue has been addressed under the current system, which is something that, that people are interested in. And in 2016, there were, uh, there were uh, 11, I'm forgetting now, 10 or 11 electors that voted for somebody other than Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. Hmm. So the electors are human beings. They're, they go into right. the state capitol and they're given a ballot. And most of the time, they vote for their designated political party nominee, but every now and then they don't. And uh, hmm. I was 12. So um, so there were 10 Democratic electors and two Republican electors that voted for someone other than their nominee. And uh, that issue is actually in the Supreme Court because in Colorado... Uh, they require the electors to pledge to vote for a particular, to sign a pledge, basically saying, I, I promise that I'll vote for the designated political party nominee. And when one elector tried to vote for somebody else, they said that violates your pledge. So we're going to remove you as an elector 
and replace you with a backup elector. And he filed a lawsuit, and that is now going to go to the Supreme Court. Huh. Uh, and fair vote is our page is cited. Our, our, our website on Fair House Electors is cited multiple times by the parties and by the lower courts. So that's we're, we're kind of the expert on that issue. So it's, that's an example of how you know our historical work on presidential elections makes us a, a educational resource yeah. on a topic mostly unrelated to ranked choice voting, uh, which is our advocacy focus. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, we do we do touch on a number of these issues. Well, you have this thing called uh, fair representation that has to do more like with multi-winner districts that uh, Fair mm-hmm. Vote also uh, advocates for. Yes, uh, I don't consider that separate from ranked choice voting actually. Okay. Uh, the, and the reason is because when you apply ranked choice voting to the election of more than one person, you get what we call fair representation. It's an American form of proportional representation meaning that each winner, rather than one person winning with a majority of votes, each winner is, com- is uh, e- each candidate is competing for their own smaller share of the votes. So if you've got a place that's like 60% Republican and 40% Democratic, and it's electing three winners with ranked choice voting, there are going to be enough Democrats there to elect one of the candidates. Mm-hmm. So you probably get two Republicans and, and one Democrat. And it, you, you like four or five or more, you start getting more and more Variety of viewpoints being yeah. reflected, yeah, and 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 that's that's incredibly uh, uh, effective. Uh, trans transferring, uh, uh, sorry, um, changing our elections from winner take all to a fair representation model. Honestly, pe- you know, people often ask me, "What's the most important electoral reform that we could do?" And it's hands down that is the most important thing that we could do. It would it would literally solve most of the problems that we mm-hmm. have with our politics in the United States. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that is actually our number one priority. Um, ranked choice voting is likely there, there are lots of systems that, that accomplish that to lesser or greater degrees and in different ways. But ranked choice voting is the only one that's been used in the United States. That's a fully proportional method. Uh, it, it allows voters to vote directly for candidates rather than voting for political parties. So there's all sorts of reasons to think that it is really the method best suited for the United States. Okay. And we're getting a track record with it, too. With uh, As you mentioned before, the state of Maine has uh, adopted uh, um, uh, ranked choice voting throughout for all elections. And so that's going to be a really good uh, precedent for other uh, communities and states to follow. And that's all. That's good. right. And there have been two. There have been two cities that actually have gone to the multi-winner proportional form of ranked choice voting just in the last year, uh, which is amazing because there had been none for like forty years, and mm. then two for first for their city councils in the last year. And both of them came out of lawsuits brought under the Voting Rights Act. So this is this is the thing when you when you've got a system that allows you to represent multiple voices within your community, one, one effect that that has is that it ensures that a ethnic or racial group that is in the minority cannot be shut out of the election. They are able to elect a fair, you know, fair representation mm. uh, uh, from their communities. And we've been arguing that, that ranked choice voting, multi-winner ranked choice voting is a, is a great solution to, to places that have what's called vote dilution, places where 
uh, a racial or ethnic minority community votes, is able to vote, but isn't able to elect anyone because of the voting method used, mm-hmm. either unfair districts or because of at-large elections. And two cities were the very first ones to adopt it in just this last year. So East Point actually used it last year, is East Point, Michigan. And the other one is Palm Desert, California, which recently agreed to a settlement to, to adopt this and is expected to use it for the first time this year. So the momentum around this issue is incredible. Who, who brought those lawsuits? The Michigan case was actually brought by the Department of Justice. Uh, uh, it was brought by the Department of Justice during the Obama years. So it was a legacy case that they wrapped up during the beginning of the Trump administration. Uh, and the it was the DOJ lawyers who negotiated with the city the remedy. They offered them a variety of remedies uh, in the city, looked at them, and decided that ranked choice voting was the one that they wanted, which again speaks to what I was saying earlier about how this is something that, that people who are you know city councilors can actually get on board with. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Palm Desert, it was brought by a uh, by, brought by a private attorney on behalf of uh, Latino advocacy groups in the city of Palm Desert. Okay. Uh, a guy named Kevin, lawyer named Kevin Shankman, who's brought a number of these cases through California. Most of them just switched the, the place from at-large elections to districts mm-hmm. on the theory that you draw a district around the most heavily Latino part of town, and then they're able to elect a candidate of choice that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ranked choice voting allows you to get the benefits of that without necessarily needing to draw districts. Palm Desert is a little bit more complicated. There is actually a district element to mm-hmm. their remedy, but I don't need to go into those details. Yeah, well. That's very interesting. I, I like hearing about this stuff. So um, I, we do need to wrap this up pretty soon. I, I just uh, I think we're coming up to a point where I think is the most important part of our conversation, and that would be the, um, the, the classic call to action. What what can our listeners do today to, uh, if they're interested in fair vote, to help fair vote advocate for solutions, uh, giving voters more voices and choices in their elections? Yeah. Well, this is actually great timing for getting involved, notwithstanding the fact that we're in the middle of a global pandemic, because uh, we've been planning for a while our week of action. It's coming up May 3rd to 9th. So if folks go to fairvote.org, right on the front page, the very the most prominent thing you'll see is the RCB week of action. And if you click on that, you'll get a you'll go to a page where you can sign up. There's going to be a kickoff event on May 3rd and then a webinar on May 6th. And uh, that's, you know, a great way to find out how you can get more involved in uh, in your state and local group and in favor of Fair Vote's national campaign. Wonderful. So there's actually uh, Fair Vote. Um, some time ago, we talked to Elizabeth Melson, and she's the president of Fair Vote. I believe it was Virginia. Uh, so Fair Vote does have local um, uh, leaders, correct? Uh, we have, yeah, state. We call them state and local partners. They're they're not technically affiliates of Fair Vote in the sense that we don't run them, mm-hmm. uh, but they are independent groups. But they're out there working for ranked choice voting, and we're supportive of them. Okay, and people when they do get involved, there's there's lots of things. Of course, donation is is one of the big ones that people think about all the time. But there's also things like you know, letter writing campaigns to your letters to your editors. Um, uh, I, I do the, is really, I don't know, what other types of activities do people have in local level? Yeah, yeah. so the, the week of action is divided into just those kinds of things. So Sunday is the kickoff event. 
Monday, we're asking people to share a short video. So sharing things through social media can be helpful. Mm, okay. uh, Tuesday is uh, voting in a voting in a sample ranked poll and sharing that so people get get a direct experience with it. Uh, Wednesday we have the webinar. Thursday we're asking people to email their leaders. Friday write a letter to the editor, and then Saturday recruit for the movement. Uh, the The Saturday one was originally going to be a house party. We decided to change that into a, into a uh, a digital action. Uh, in light of the circumstances, okay. uh, but uh, house parties are another thing that, when when we aren't in a, a state of social distancing, are a great way to get your neighbors involved and organize people. Yeah, that sounds really good, and that's starting May third to May 9th, and that uh, the website is www.fairvote.org. It's all one word: f a i r v o t e. Fairvote.org. Great. Well, um, I appreciate you dropping by this evening, Drew. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on. So uh, we've been talking with Drew Penrose, the Law and Policy Director for Fair Vote. Drew contributes to efforts to promote ranked choice voting, primary election reform, election administration, and the Voting Rights Act. I'd like to thank M. Lloyd Johnson, who also works on the Alliance Party After Dark, for helping to put together tonight's podcast. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. Also, keep in mind that the podcast now has a Twitter page, at Alliance On Air. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of the Alliance Party, a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party. If you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. Drop in, see what we're all about, and get involved. Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or blog, or run for office. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the Alliance Party After Dark, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe, be aware, and please take care of yourself and those around you.